Goldfish Podcast, episode 91, finance writer Chaz, accompanied by the purveyor of jank, Seth. What's going on? <laughs> what's up, Chaz? <laughs> the, <laughs> and the owner of uh, MTG Goldfish, Richard, how are you? What's up, guys? What's going on? Uh, actually, former owner. I beat you in that Momir match, Richard. Yes, I, I relinquished all rights to the site, and I got uh, challenged to a match of Momir and lost. Mortgage the site, Richard. I, I would expect a uh, high roller. Uh, so, on the docket today, Pro Tour Kaladesh is in the books. We are going to talk about our impressions, uh, things that surprised us, and the untapped land gate. So, that's kind of all part of uh, PT Kaladesh. Uh, we're going to wrap things up with <laughs> a, more <laughs> a more interesting topic in uh, Hall of Famers showing up to Pro Tours and the whole, um, you know, Hall of Famers having, a, I guess, a free pass to Hall uh, Pro Tours. And then we're going to end it off with uh, Fish Mail. So let's just let's just start it off. Let's just get our impressions out there of Pro Tour Kaladesh. Uh, we'll start with you, Richard. Yeah, I think this was one of the best pro tours in, in recent memory. We had a super diverse field. There was no deck that kind of broke out. We kind of saw uh, all the decks make their appearance. We saw Aetherworks Marvel. We saw vehicle decks. We saw control decks. We saw even some energy uh, green-red aggressive decks. So the metagame was kind of what it was going in, and there was no breakout deck. And the decks were very balanced. We had a, a diverse top eight. We had all eight unique decks across seven countries, I believe. And we got to see Shota, the master of control, do his stuff and basically put on a masterclass. I am sure there will be many YouTube videos after this breaking down his play. Uh, it was just incredibly awesome. And I think Wizards of the Coast, their R&D was just ecstatic. Like they, they hit the nail on everything. Good decks, uh, balanced decks, new mechanics... Uh, just just everything you wanted at a Pro Tour happened for Pro Tour Kaladesh. So I think this is actually one of the better Pro Tours I've seen in the last couple of years. Awesome. Seth, what do you think? Yeah, it was a great tournament. One of the things, the main thing that stuck out is for the last few Pro Tours, there's been this consistent narrative of one deck. I mean, if you think back, the poster child example of this is Oath of the Gatewatch when Eldrazi just destroyed Modern, and that was all we saw was Eldrazi mirror matches through the entire tournament. But even with the standard Pro Tours, Bant Company was, like, such a huge story. This tournament wasn't like this. It was amazingly diverse, not just in the decks, but... It was across archetypes. Like, people thought control was dead, and we had two control decks in the finals. We had crazy brew around me decks, like the blue red spells deck. We had some of the aggro decks. We had not only the vehicles decks, but some like token strategies, some red black aggro decks. We had emerge decks. And I came away from the tournament feeling super excited for standard because I wasn't. I usually I come out of it thinking, oh my god, now I gotta be make budget magic decks that like beat bat company this is going to be miserable but i came out of this pro tour thinking there's so many possibilities and i don't even know what the tier one decks of the format are like i if you ask me the tier one there's like 10 decks or 12 decks that legitimately could argue <laughs> right. they could be tier one decks a month from now so i thought it was awesome yeah i'm gonna go off um i think it's what you and well i guess richard said as well um r&d really nailed it i mean going off with you guys said it's incredibly diverse and you're right like there's not even there was no like far and away best deck no really deck 
took and, and ran with the tournament. And right up until the top eight, we were just seeing like diverse diversity. And even in the top eight, we saw diversity. And I mean, it was like Seth's dream as I'm sitting there watching two control decks in the finals. You know, as much as I hate to say this, but it was really engaging. You know, control against control. There was a lot of it was great. I mean, so many different, uh, you know, routes of play. Showed a, I mean, congrats to him. He's just amazing. I mean, back to back pro tours. I like, I can't even. That's so good. Uh, I, I got to give big. Huge credit to both uh, Shoda and Carlos because yeah. they played quickly, and that that control mirror could have been incredibly boring for a lot of people. I like control mirrors, but even just looking at the Twitch chat, a lot of people don't. But because they both played is such a really insanely fast pace for a control mirror, it was actually pretty easy to watch. I think even for people that don't like control mirrors, so we didn't have like. Uh, the one player sitting there and tanking for five minutes every turn in a five-hour-long finals in this control mirror, they kept up such a good pace that it made it really enjoyable to watch. So uh, thanks to both of them for doing that because it made for much better viewing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other thing, um, the other thing is, is you know, with we talked about this. I, I mean, we've mentioned this so many times. Even when the you know we first learned that. Magic is going to these two block, you know, two block cadence and everything. I mean, these last couple pro tours, this one was really good and might even be a lot better than the ones that I'm even remembering just recently. I think we're on, we're on to something here. I mean, these two block, if if it's going to continue like this, I mean, sign me. I'm, I'm so like all in on this. This is fantastic because it just seems like, like every time a new set like with these two block cadences come out and there's a pro tour we're just getting like this really great engaging tournament with all this like diversity and it's it's fantastic uh yeah i think one of the keys to this pro tour was the increase in power level we've seen that all the kaladesh cards are super powerful so that makes for kind of exciting and swingy turns but more importantly they brought back combo we had two different combo decks we had the various Aetherworks Marvel decks. We had the uh, kind of energy infect decks. And that led to a lot of matches. We saw aggro versus combo, aggro versus control, control versus combo. And we even had mid-range thrown in there, mid-range versus aggro. So that led to the diversity of matches. And no two games played out the same. It wasn't really Abzan, Coco versus Bant, Coco, and a whole bunch of creatures just bashing each other. But we actually had very different game plans being enacted, which I thought led to a very good viewing experience. Yeah, and to continue on with what you said, Richard, and I'm just going back to the thing that you said about, you know, your statement about how R&D kind of nailed this. You know, we were talking right about, you know, before Pro Tour, right when kind of Kaladesh came out, right, set that. We were concerned that maybe, you know, Kaladesh would bring some powerful standalone cards, but it just turns out that Kaladesh is just good enough on its own that, like Richard said, I mean, you're, you're talking about all these engine cards, like Dynavolt Tower. That's, I mean, that's a Seth card if I ever saw one. <laughs> uh, you know, Aetherworks Marvel and and vehicles and all this thing. But at the same time, it's not like Kaladesh like completely took over because we still have all the good stuff from from Battle for Zendikar. Well, maybe less from Battle for Zendikar. Well, Gideon showed up, so I guess that's <laughs> what was good from Battle for Zendikar that showed up. But um. The Shadows block, where you still have like Emerge and Delirium and all that stuff, everything was just at the table. It, it just, it was fantastic to see like all these 
two set blocks like gelling so well together. Yeah, I mean, one of the big questions was, uh, as far as energy, if there would be enough support. And the, the Pro Tour definitely proved that there was. There's multiple decks that are completely different. The Infect-like deck, the Marvel deck, that are 100% built around the energy mechanic. And that kind of makes me feel more comfortable with the two-set block cadence in general. Because that was one of my concerns was... Uh, when you have a mechanic that only gets two sets instead of one, are you going to be able to give it enough support for it to show up in standard? Like, allies couldn't do it in from uh, Battle for Zendikar block. There just wasn't enough good allies to ever push that into standard. But with energy, we see that it's possible. And if Wizards wants to, they can make tier one standard decks with just one set or one block, which makes me feel much better about how standard is going to look moving forward. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you both, what are your surprising things? Because I wrote down a whole bunch of observations that are just fantastic. Uh, Richard, did you want to start us off with that? So the most surprising thing in my mind was the metagame didn't change at all. There was no breakout deck. Basically, Magic Online looked like the Pro Tour the week before. Maybe some decks were a bit overplayed. Maybe they were a bit more you know, pummeler decks on Magic Online, but we basically saw all of the major decks in play, even including Grixis Control. You know, there was always the random guy playing Jeskai Control or Grixis Control on Magic Online, which was pretty much probably Shoda under his alias. <laughs> but, you know, in the tournament, there was one Grixis Control. So it was basically, you know, nothing nothing crazy happened. And all of the innovations were, you know, one or two card innovations on the existing archetypes. Aetherworks Marvel didn't, really change contingency plan i saw in magic online the week before you know even the secret tech was was leaked out so that to me is the biggest surprise we didn't have some crazy deck coming out of left field crushing the competition but basically the week one meta week two week three meta kind of just carried on to the pro tour and we basically saw them operate basically at the highest level in the hands of pros i mean reed duke was playing just straight up you know white red vehicles the boogeyman so that was surprising and I guess refreshing that kind of the the community at large has kind of caught up to the pros at this pro tour that there wasn't anything too crazy and that just random moto players were able to discover the archetypes. All right, I got a couple things. First off, we already talked about it, but the diversity was a surprise to me. Like I just wasn't expecting so many viable decks. So that was one good surprise. For me, the biggest surprise was probably control. Like, heading into this tournament, I'm a control player. I love control decks. And I follow what other control players are saying about the format. And leading up to this tournament, like, on Star City Game, Shaheen Sarani was just... He is, like, the prototypical SCG control player. And he was pretty down on control. And, like, maybe you got to be, like, black-red control. And then... At the Pro Tour, we saw Jeskai Control be one of the most successful decks. Shota won the tournament with Grixis Control. So despite vehicles and all these things that make controls seem really bad in the current meta, uh, the pros just totally found a way to make it work. So that was a, a huge shock to me and really exciting for me as a control player. Yeah. I don't know if these are most surprising things, but <laughs> this is just a list of things that uh, I, I came away with. The most... The big thing for me and probably the most relieving thing is that I get to come back with you gentlemen 
and and do the cast because there was no Nissa's <laughs> at the tournament. We dodged it. There was no sign of it anywhere. <laughs> I was completely relieved. And this is coming from the green player here. Like, <laughs> so uh, take that for what it is. Donovan Ban, Don, <laughs> Dovin Ban, Donovan. Ben, whatever we're calling it, in the top eight, I mean, Seth, you're, you're exa- absolutely right. So I'm just kind of piggybacking. I was really surprised to see, like, Control doing so well. And and that's just because, you know, it was it was a fairly aggressive format going into, you know, like, like it always is when there's a huge meta shift. But, I mean, vehicle, it looked like, I mean, it was pretty tough. I mean, vehicles and, and, and just all these, like, really aggressive, like, copter and these reoccurring... Uh, threats like um, prized amalgam and scrap heap scrounger. We, we all saw that, but I was just surprised that they got, you know, they made it work. Like fumigate was still played. I mean, the, the real big winner here was um, the torrential gear Hulk, something that you've liked right from the, the spoilers. And I kind of, you know, all these gear hulks are so great. Yeah. I, I think that's kind of the best thing that I took away from this was that it just seems like everything is represented and we're heading into a really fun standard. I mean, it looked really fun. Yeah, I was actually quite surprised Jeskai did so well, and I'm almost tempted to say it was just because it was Carlos. Uh, we, we saw Dovin Bond do basically nothing. <laughs> he didn't seem that good, and even with the emblem, like, Shoda just maneuvered under the emblem, which was the problem I had with the blue-white builds. So after our last podcast where uh, I complained about blue-white control... Uh, I went to blue black, and I was fairly successful with it. I went five zero three two four one, and really the only thing that got to it was just really fast decks where they go one drop, one drop, one drop. Splashing red to go Grixis kind of solves that. You have one mana removal. Uh, the problem with the white removal is you can't play it until they attack, which means if you're on the play, uh, you can't do anything until your opponent's third turn, unless you you really want to kill a Thraven Inspector. So I was actually quite surprised White uh, showed up in control, but Shoda's list just seemed absolutely nuts based on uh, my experience because as blue-black control, Marvel decks are just nothing. There's just like a, a buy almost for you. So the <laughs> only thing you need to worry about is the super aggressive go-wide decks and main deck Radiant Flames, Weaver of Lightnings, uh, Galvanic Bombardments kind of just all swept that up. So that, that was actually pretty interesting. And we saw on camera a lot of the times just Dovin Bond coming down and getting hit by a, uh, a copter <laughs> pumped with uh, Pia to get to four power. So I don't know about Dovin Bond's future, but... Yeah. I think I think Marshall put it best during the top eight. He said, Carlos has two planeswalkers in his hand, but one of them is Dovin Bond. <laughs> <laughs> like, it doesn't even count as a full planeswalker. Like, Gideon's a planeswalker, and Dovin Bond's like half of a planeswalker or something. Stasis uh, is not that good. That ultimate is actually really underwhelming. Oh, and, well, and Shoda's really good. I think I would have definitely lost to that emblem when it happened because i would have tapped out for something <laughs> stupid and then and then gotten destroyed but so i think part of it is shoda played really well through the the static orb well, the so. best part was when he had the gear hulk and he didn't attack i know so <sighs> many of us noobs would have been like oh we landed a gear hulk let's protect and go but shoda's like nope we, we will wait so that's uh, pretty crazy we will wait young grasshoppers this is not I, the time to attack I also want to give a shout out to the the blue white mid range players. There were four decks that went nine and one in constructed, yeah. and 
every single one was a blue-white spell queller, Archangel Avis, and Gideon deck. Every single one. So these players just absolutely pegged the tournament, crushed the tournament, had Spellqueller is the unsung hero, I think, of the tournament. It didn't show up a lot on camera, but it might be like just the best card in standard right now. It wrecks Etherworks Marvel. It's good against the control decks. It is just so well positioned. And the players that came up with this blue white mid-range deck just hit it out of the park. If they had had even like middling limited performances, we would be talking about this as the breakout deck of the Pro Tour to some extent because it started with very few players. I think there were four players on it and three of them went nine and one with this deck. So uh, so I wanted to give a shout out to them because they definitely hit it out of the park with their constructed deck. Yeah, I definitely wrote that down. It was it was quietly the best deck at the at the tournament. Like very quietly. Not maybe not anymore, but um yeah, I I, I think it has a good future going forward. Cause like you said, uh Seth, I mean Spellqueller is extremely well positioned. Now, whether that, you know, we go back to, we talked about this before we started recording. I mean, this is this is the Pro Tour. You got to understand. I mean, once we still go back to, like, watching SCG every week and, you know, not these huge, you know, EV, high-end EV events, you know, we, we'll see where we go from there. I'm really curious to see what happens moving forward because I think people right. are going to pick up the control decks and not be able to play them nearly as well as Carlos or Shoda and lose with them. But those decks are so well positioned against Etherworks Marvel's deck. If a lot of right. people pick up the Etherworks Marvel deck because it's the flashiest, coolest deck in the format, then maybe even being a bad control player is going to make you like win a lot of games because you just have such a good matchup with Etherworks Marvel. So I'm really curious to see what the GPs and SCG tournaments look like over the next couple weeks. Yeah. Uh, one last thing before we move on, and this is something that you tweeted out, uh, Richard, the decks were actually really affordable. I mean, did we? I think that's definitely a point we should at least you know mention is that standard is affordable as well as diverse and fun. I mean, you 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 showed um all the the average deck list of the top eight or was it just the top you know uh, six plus lists, Richard? Uh, it was the I top can't eight when the I sent out the tweet. Okay, and I think the average was what two fifties, two something like that. Yeah, it was about two fifty. The low end was one. 120 or something i can't recall and the high end was uh much higher so it depends on what cards because if you play Shoda's right. deck it's basically all commons and uncommons and like gear hulks uh but if you play some of the other decks they, there's a lot of expensive cards like spell quellers gideons and yeah. things like that so uh it, it depends on what you play but basically the blue red package is really cheap uh the the blue red dynavolt tower deck was also very cheap because basically you're just playing a draft deck on steroids <laughs> so, <laughs> so good things good things to come but I, I don't know what it looks like after all the pro tour price spikes but uh, it was pretty cheap during the top eight itself i'm sure it will be in the coming weeks i mean uh, you know price spikes aside i mean seth we've seen this uh for you know numerous pro tours i mean cards really have nowhere to go but down from here yeah, definitely. They spike, but then almost all the cards that spike because of a Pro Tour end up going down back to near their previous price. Maybe not 100% of the way there, but most of the way there. Yeah. All right, so let's get into the the Hall of Fame uh, invites and the untapped land gate, I guess we're going to call it. <laughs> Lay it out for us, Richard, and then uh, we can give our thoughts. So in one of the games... In the finals, uh, Shoda played a Spire Bluff Canal uh, that's supposed to come into play tapped, 
but it came into play untapped. And that basically let him get a full turn ahead, cast a glimmer of genius and whatnot. And no one caught it. Coverage didn't catch it. Judges didn't catch it. Twitch chat caught it. And there was a big uproar about it. Uh, you know, some people were thinking Shota was cheating. Some people were complaining about Wizard's lack of, I guess, professionalism. Like, how can this go on in the kind of the biggest stage of Magic? But there was a big controversy. Uh, they eventually addressed it. By saying, you know, we know this happened. You get a uh, games rule violation warning, but since it's too, the game has progressed too far, we can't rewind to that point. And that's basically what happens when stuff like this happens. Uh, but there's a lot of controversy uh, regarding coverage and kind of Shota's integrity. Uh, a lot of people are, are discussing it. Uh, so I want to get your opinions on on all of this matter. Okay. Well. Uh... Every single thing I've heard people say about Shota is he has a great reputation and that he's never been under any cloud of suspicion for cheating. That's what everyone thinks about him. So uh, based on that track record, it seems unlikely that if you have decades worth of clean play in this reputation, you're suddenly just going to decide to start cheating in the finals of a pro tour while you're on camera. So I think it's unlikely that he cheated, although it is odd to me just because essentially any non-basic land he would play on that board state would come into play tapped. So it was very odd to me that that was a mistake that could be made. I mean, maybe he's just thinking, I really want to cast this glimmer and just kind of does it instinctively. So I don't think he was intentionally cheating, although the whole situation of it is somewhat suspicious. But based on his track record, I'm willing to give him a pass. On the other hand, now that we've had this happen, I think Wizards has to take some sort of precautions to uh, be able to catch these things quicker because it it kind of did influence the game in a major way. And you don't want your premier tournament series to be under the shadow of doubt to some extent because of something like this happening. If it had been caught right away, you could have just rewound uh, no big deal. The game continues as normal. So I think maybe that is the story to come away with. Not so much about Shota, but why when we have 40,000 people watching this and hundreds of thousands of dollars on the line, do we not have a system in place where uh, like pro sports, where there's going to be a judge that's watching for these things and be able to catch them as they're happening. Yeah, I think it was an honest mistake. I just think everybody missed it. I mean, I just it's it's like that pass interference call that everyone knows and everyone saw and you and it, you lose a Super Bowl over it. You know, and it's like what do you do about that? And you know, like you, like Richard said they addressed it. You get a game violation, but at the point where they caught it, the the game has just progressed too far. It is what it is at that point. I'm just concerned because and this is where you were going, Seth, that they need to take precautions in the future. I mean, these are untimed, in the top eight anyway. If this was like early on or midway through the tournament and something happened like this, fine. But this is the top eight. These are untimed. What, let's just assume that most of the judges that they hired for the tournament are still around. Like They stuck around for the top eight, a good majority of them. And, and this is where you're going for precautions going forward. Maybe instead of sitting in the background... These judges should be in the foreground, right? They should be right there watching. I mean, there's eight people left. You're not. You can't tell me that. Oh, you know how? You know they can't watch or whatever. I mean, they're judges. They, they should be watching. They're, they should be standing right there. They they were they were doing that anyway. 
standing around these 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 players and watching what's going on. You can't botch this in a top eight at the highest level at the Pro Tour. I mean, I think there there's no one to individually blame here. Everyone was kind of at fault. I mean, right. Shota was probably playing 20 turns ahead in his mind. So, you know, if he accidentally put a land into play untapped, okay. But his opponent should have caught it. Carlos should have caught it, right? And, you know, if Carlos didn't catch it, the judge should have caught it. Uh, but the judge didn't. So that that's kind of the the first big point there. The judge is the one who's, you know, that's his sole job. So he should have caught it. But, you know, he's been judging for, you know, who knows how many hours. And you can't just rely on one person, no matter how good they are, to catch everything. So I think what Seth said is just have multiple judges uh, so that, you know, you can have a main judge for calls. You know, the keep board state correct judge and the, you know, the life total judge or whatever. And just have everything work together like that. And I think that would basically solve it. Uh, So I I don't know that there's anything more than that to say. I think people are making it a bigger deal than it actually is. Yeah. Uh, You know, is Shoda cheating? Maybe, maybe not. I, I don't know. But there were all these other systems that failed. And just having one incident in a basically flawless career is not enough for me to kind of bring out my pitchfork and do anything about it you know it's just a (laughs) note and move on you know after playing literally i don't know like 18 hours of magic 30 hours of magic over the weekend you know these people are human mistakes can't happen uh you know when they continually happen then you can raise an eyebrow but this was a one-off thing Uh, but it's really on coverage to get more judges there to prevent this from happening so People are making it a bigger deal than it actually is, so it's it's just what it is, and hopefully Wizards will use this to kind of up their coverage game for the next Pro Tour. Right, and like you said, I mean, if it's not get more judges, put the judges that you have currently in a better position that they can make these calls. I mean, like you said, if you need to put a few judges at each table, so be it, right? And I mean... <laughs> The one judge that we saw on camera, it seemed like uh, his job was to make sure things that really don't matter were happening correctly. Like, oh, was does this token have vigilance? Like, did you untap two or three lands with that Tovin Bond emblem? And instead, they miss like something really big and important. So maybe, I mean, I'm not a judge. I don't know what the training is like, but maybe, maybe there could be. Uh, different roles like the NFL where you got someone that's watching the offensive line and you got someone in the backfield that's watching the defensive backs and people have different roles and positions that are watching certain things. So maybe there's a way to maximize the efficiency of the judges by giving them specific roles for the tournament instead of just having a bunch of judges kind of all standing around and potentially watching the same thing. Like I, like I said, I'm not a judge. Maybe this already happens and I don't know about it, but it seems like you could have specific roles for individual judges, not at every tournament, but for the top eight of a pro tour, you might as well go all out and do everything you can to make sure the game plays out correctly. To be fair to the judge, they're kind of looking for things that are tricky that the players might miss, and they're kind of assuming <laughs> that they do their land drops correctly because there, there were some good things that the judges caught. I believe both players forgot to exile their their gear hulked flashbacked cards, so they yes. did catch some stuff. But I think you, you, the point of just multiple judges, one trying to catch the weird stuff, one trying to catch the basic stuff, I think that would solve it. So that's just not one guy trying to follow the super complex control match that's going on. That was right. going goes- at warp speed, too, which had to make it harder <laughs> for everyone involved, I'm sure. 
Right, and, and it goes back just to kind of close my, uh, you know, my thoughts on this. It goes back to what you were saying, Richard. It, it was a long weekend. You know, they're probably working harder than anybody. And, you know, at the end of the day, you guys, you, it just it sucks that so many, like you said, this kind of line of, you know, safety nets all failed. <laughs> but I mean, you're sitting there. You're, you, I mean, you start to space out after a while. These guys have been running on. E probably all weekend they're like from from dawn to dusk you know and more the entire day so you know a lot of things could have happened but you know like like you said if you put if you utilize like or Seth said rather if you utilize the judges that you have and you put them in a better position then they could you know better make those calls all right so that'll bring us into another discussion that we uh <laughs> want to briefly touch on is Hall of Famers getting a free pass to Pro Tours. And for the listeners that have no idea what I'm talking about, when you're inducted into the Magic Hall of Fame, you get a free invite to the Pro Tour. They 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 fly in there. You don't, you know, you get your your expenses paid. I don't know how far it goes. I think it's just your airfare or what have you. You get like an appearance fee of, you know, X amount. And all these Hall of Famers can go to any, basically any pro tour that they want to. In this particular case, Kibler and you know Kibler's appearance at these pro tours. So, go ahead, Seth. Uh, so, uh, I like Kibler as much as everyone else. I think he's a really entertaining figure, and he's obviously done well for himself. But at this point, Kibler isn't really a Magic player. He's a Hearthstone player or a, a just a gaming celebrity i'm not even sure but he's not really a magic player but because of these hall of fame benefits he kind of gets a free vacation to go to pro tours and he was given multiple feature matches throughout the tournament and just made some really poor plays his deck didn't really seem like it was attuned or that i don't know that thought out and it seemed like he just pretty much was packing it in for the pro tour so he could have a vacation to Hawaii. And I, I can't blame him because if you get a free vacation to Hawaii, uh, why not take it? I guess, but it, it was very awkward to watch someone that used to be one of the best players in games, just commit really simple boneheaded mistakes that your average, like new player to F and M probably isn't going to make like basic, reading your own cards type mistake. So it just felt like he didn't care. And we've heard stories about this before with him registering 40 planes at GP Las Vegas so he could get his appearance fee and then just go partying in Vegas. So I'm torn on it. To me, it kind of diminishes the specialness of the Hall of Fame when you have Hall of Fame players that are treating these benefits frivolously. And I think it's even more frustrating because some players really care about this. You see Chris Pakula, who's been grinding like crazy to get on the pro tour so he can, or to get in the hall of fame so he can go to pro tour events. So I don't know the whole situation with Kibler just made me feel bad about the whole thing. And I'm not saying you got to get rid of the benefits, but just at least don't give them a feast your mash. Cause I was almost embarrassed to watch it, watch it. It's like when you, uh, watch like Peyton Manning last year you have someone that used to be the great of the game and then they just go out and struggle immensely at the end of their career and can't do the stuff that used to be so easy for them a few years ago that's what I felt like watching Kibler except it was even worse because I felt like he didn't care and that's why he wasn't playing well rather than just like losing his ability first of all that's yeah. Super Bowl winning Peyton Manning <laughs> last year but 
I, I want to I want to make sure we keep this objective, right? I don't want to call into question Kibler's kind of work ethic or his desire. Like we don't know any of that. And to be fair to Kibler, he was actually eight and three at one point. So he came out of the gate sloppy, but he actually pulled it together and was actually in the running for quite a while. But it was a funny story because I was watching at home, and my girlfriend walks by and she's like, "Isn't that Brian Kibler?" And I'm like, "Yeah, it's Brian Kibler." And she's like, oh, I thought he plays Hearthstone now. I'm like, yeah, he does. <laughs> and I'm like, so why is he here? I'm like, oh, because you get a an invite to uh, the Pro Tour when you're in the Hall of Fame. And she's like, well, won't he damage his image? And I'm like, oh, no, don't worry. He's a Hall of Famer. He's, like, so good. Like, I mean, a lot of people do this. Like, Finkel kind of just doesn't play Magic until, you know, the month before Pro Tour shows up, crushes. Like, don't worry about it. And then he proceeds to, like, punt left and right. Uh, and I was just like, oh dear, I'm like this is embarrassing. <laughs> I take back everything I said. But yeah, I think at this point, there's no there's no point into showing up because I think Kibler is kind of damaging his brand by doing this. Like if you show up and play tight, then okay. But he was clearly not uh, in the groove of things. He was like putting tokens in the graveyard. He forgot to pay for his trigger. Uh, it's weird, and Seth's suggestion of not putting him on camera is a little awkward. Like, the whole reason Wizards pays uh, the Hall of Famers is so that they can come and promote the game, which involves putting people you know and love, like Brian Kibler, on camera. So, if you're not going to put them on camera, why are you paying them to show to your event? So, it's a little weird, and I, I don't know what the solution is. Uh, there should be benefits to being on the Hall of Fame, uh, but, you know, seeing sloppy play is not exactly what we want to see. So I, I don't know what the happy solution is, but uh, I think something should be done. Like, clearly it's a problem. And they've kind of hinted at this before. When they reduced the Hall of Fame benefits, this was one of the things that they stated. They stated that people were kind of just getting a free lunch and the program was not doing what it wanted. And I think this example kind of just shows us kind of on camera, like, what that problem is. I hope Wizards does something about it, but... Uh, you know, if if I was Brian Kibler, like, why would I not do this? Would you not like a free vacation to Hawaii? Like, why would you turn this down? Right? He's just taking advantage of the system that's there. So it's really up to Wizards to make sure you can't take advantage of that system. I have a few things on this. Firstly, I mean, I love Kibler, just so that's out there. Great player, you know. And like you said, Richard, he was in contention at one point. Maybe he was actually trying. I don't know. I'm not going to question that. What I am going to question is, you're exactly right. I mean... I wouldn't. I don't blame him for for going. I mean, why wouldn't he, right? Like, why wouldn't any of these guys, you know, just pick up? Yeah, why not, right? Maybe, you know, what happens? Let's see what happens. I don't. I don't have a solution either. But it just seems like it feels like some people are more deserving than others. Like, like Fink or whatever. All these guys, like when they show up, they they they're all about playing magic, right? Like Kibler, he's his own brand, and not that I even. I don't even hold it against him for doing that. He he probably realized a long time ago that he can the money is in Hearthstone or in his own brand and all that stuff, and he makes way more than Wizards cared to offer him or whatever. And that's probably why he did all that in the first place. That's you know beside the point. You know he he's just all about you know himself, right? Like Kibler, I get to show I'm on camera and all this. Like I'm I'm still all about Kibler at the end of the day. Like. After the Pro Tour, I don't ever remember seeing Kibler. Maybe he writes like an article here and there on Star City Games Premium or something like that. But it's not like he's actively, you know, in the community that enough that I see like, oh, you know, okay, Kibler, you know, when he does show up, he just had a bad run, but he's all about magic, right? And he just does like Hearthstone and all that on the side. 
it's actually funny that you brought up your your girlfriend, Richard, because that's actually a point that I didn't even think of. It's like, well, what are you paying all these guys, you know, these these Hall of Famers for to show up to Magic when when someone who knows Kibler comes up and has that statement, then the whole thing is not even working. Like if if your girlfriend's first statement about Brian Kibler is that he's going to hurt his reputation by showing up to the Magic Hall of Fame, that's a problem. That's a big problem. I don't, but I don't know the solution to that because it's like they're paying all these people to come out to Magic the Gathering, but none of these guys—they're not even Magic League players, pretty much. They're not adding anything beneficial to the Magic brand. Yeah, maybe a solution is there's a certain number of points you need to be platinum. Maybe if you're Hall of Fame, that's reduced. So you know, you still need to be active. You still need to kind of know what you're doing, but right. you don't need to grind as hard as the other guys. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but yeah, I don't know either. I just want to bring that up because I—it's like that—that that kind of point that you brought up even like emphasized my points even more. That's like the first thing people should see when they see Hall of Famers is like, wow, like remember when they did all this? Like in Magic, yeah, he's a great player. Look at like Johnny Finkel and Kai Booty and all those people. Yeah, remember that like ten years ago? Not you know if you see Brian Kibler, oh, is his reputation going to be like ruined because he's like a Hearthstone player now? Like it's kind of weird, right? Uh, one thing that didn't drop off was his shuffling game. <laughs> My God, I forgot how annoying this was. <laughs> it's like, you know, there's people that shuffle their hands. I don't even notice at this point. But Kibler was just going, like, full out. And it was so distracting. I haven't seen him do it in so long, so I wasn't used to it. But I remember it was, like, so cool when I saw it at first. But now I'm just like, holy crap. <laughs> He's, like, on steroids <laughs> compared to everyone else. I don't know if this is a good suggestion or not, but maybe... The solution is to give Hall of Famers less financial benefits. Like, allow them, if they want to come to the tournament, to come play in the tournament and they compete for prizes and all that stuff. But if you're literally uh, not only giving people an invite to the tournament, but a plane trip and $1,500 or whatever amount of money, like, you're literally incentivizing people to just come for the money not care about the tournament but if you had to actually like pay some of your own way but you were still open to play because i don't want to discourage uh people like finkel and kai booty who are people we want to see at pro tours and kibler too if he really wants to be there um i don't want to discourage those people from playing because they do add a lot to the pro tours but i think the way the system is set up it just makes it so easy to be abused so maybe there's a way that you can still give people the pro tour invites and honor them for being in the hall of fame but make it so you can't just use it as a free vacation if you can scrub out of the pro tour real quick you get a free weekend in hawaii or something which is what it kind of incentivizes now i think for or could incentivize and register 40 planes and go to a rave, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of like where Richard was going. Maybe you, you know, you lower the barrier for them, like, in the sense that they don't have to grind as much, right? Because like, it, it just still shows that, you know, they're committed to the game. And we, you know, having these people, it is adding something to the brand. And And I get what you're saying. Like, it's still good to have them there, but it's like... It just feels like some better than others, right? And maybe that's always going to happen. I don't have a like clear-cut solution. And to be fair, even in this case, my guess is Kibler did more for Magic than any other uh, Hall of Famer. You know, even though he shut up on camera right. and like looked kind of out of it, he probably brought a ton of his Hearthstone fans to the Magic stream to check out Magic the Gathering. 
And if they stay tuned, they would have caught Shota mastering the game. <laughs> but I think... Because Kibler is special because he's so big. I think in this case, it, it was actually a net benefit still. But... Right. I, I, I don't know. In general, it's it's not good for the game. Kibler is special. So maybe in this case, you know, just bringing over like <laughs> 5% of his Hearthstone followers was probably worth the appearance fees for, for Wizards of the Coast. So the, the clear answer is to make Kibler play Magic again. <laughs> then he can show up to the yeah. Pro Tour and crush, and we can get Finkel versus uh, Kibler with the Wolf token again and go back to the glory days of MTG. Uh, I don't think I, they could offer him enough. <laughs> I mean, we probably don't want to get in this conversation now, but yeah. that's the big underlying problem is a face of the game like Kibler finds it more profitable to go to a different game. So if you want to have Kibler invested in the Pro Tour, maybe you make it worth his while, and that's something that Magic just hasn't done yet on the tournament scene. It's taking small steps with increasing prize pools at Worlds and stuff like that, but uh, I mean, that's the big solution. Make it more worth Kibler's while to care about Magic than it is to care about Hearthstone. But there's that new trophy, Seth. (laughs) Oh my god. (laughs) What is that trophy? Can someone explain to me what that, like, Play-Doh spine thing going over the Plains of Hawker symbol is? They, they've know. had a bad run of luck with trophies. Do you remember the last? I don't remember what it was, but the last trophy was pretty widely mocked too. I don't know if it was. It might have been Worlds, the Worlds trophy. So I don't. I don't know. Wizards has bad luck with trophies, or they're just not good at making that them, or something. Trophy costs like twenty five dollars, man. Like it's, <laughs> it's literally like two boxes with the Planeswalker symbol, and then they get these little plates and stick them on. Like, can you not etch their name into uh, it? You know, to make it look like it's you know long lasting and worthwhile. Like, <laughs> we have a lot of championship trophies to, to copy from. You know, the Stanley Cup, great idea. You know, I want to see someone hoist the cup over their head and run around. But nope, we get this <laughs> weird looking trophy that I don't even know you want to take a picture with. <laughs> it looks like someone's art project. I don't understand what they were doing with this. Someone. Explained. <laughs> Before we go into fish mail, at least we wrap it up. At least we knew it was in Hawaii, right? Oh yeah, that, they that did was really do good. a good job with that. Yeah, yes, yes. I like the sense of place. It was. They must have listened to you, Richard uh, and Seth, on this one because you guys were really sticklers on this. Um, that they needed to show a sense of place, and I absolutely agreed with you. And they they definitely did. So great job on that one. Um, let's go to fish mail because uh, we have quite a few of them. And uh, I will let Richard explain the stipulation on uh, this going forward because uh, we get a lot of uh, a repeating question <laughs> in particular. All right. It's time for the MTG fish mail. So we'll answer your questions here on the cast. So if you want to ask a question, send a tweet to at MTG Goldfish with the hashtag MTG fish mail. And like Chaz just alluded to, we get a lot of masterpiece questions. So... We're going to answer all of them right here, right now, give you kind of the, the general guideline for Masterpieces, and then we're not going to answer Masterpiece questions for a while, just to, just to cut back time. So the most common questions are, what is the ceiling? What is the floor? Should I hold my Masterpiece? When should I buy my Masterpiece? So with those four questions in mind, Chaz and Seth, what, what is your advice? The thing about, uh, well, yeah, because all these questions about ceilings and price and when do I sell, I opened one. The thing is, is that if you're going to use it, you might as well just keep it because as we've seen with the expeditions with battle for Zendikar, um, 
the floor is is it's just like anything else. The we're we're not really quite into the lifetime of Kaladesh yet. Like the, we're we're still in the first few weeks of opening. They're really only going to dip a little bit uh, more as you know more product is open. The thing about now, like going forward, is that they're in every set, so we really don't know how many repeating expeditions we'll even see. So if you're going to use it, definitely just keep it. And if you plan on just holding it, you plan on holding it for quite some time because the the trajectory on a lot of these expeditions and masterpieces seem to be very slow, very steady. Uh, steady. You know, the outlook is good, but it's going to take quite some time uh, to get there. Yeah, I think if if you're the person that gets lucky and opens a masterpiece at your pre-release. Unless you're going to use it, I would say just sell it, get the yep. money, because uh, you got to consider the opportunity cost. Yes, it's possible that your invention three years from now, four years from now, ends up increasing somewhat in price, but it's going to take a long time. And you got to think, would I rather have uh, $100 today or $150 in four years? Uh, chances are you can make better use of that $100 and do more things with it if you have it now than waiting that long. And we don't have a long enough track record to really say. We'll see in a couple years what happens with the Zendikar expeditions. If they really jump in price, uh, I think there's a chance that that happens. But if you look at them now, their price chart after they get opened after the first month or two is pretty pretty flat if anything they most have decreased a little bit over the past year but no basically stable so there doesn't seem to be much to be gained in the short term by holding on to them so a either use them and play with them and put them in your commander deck and love them and that's a good choice b if you're not going to do that just sell them and get the money and buy cards that you will use or c if you are going to hold them plan on holding them for quite a long time two three years probably at a minimum before you may or may not start to see some gains perfect all right so let's move on to our questions first question was from at shanderson 93 it was a masterpiece question so uh, refer to our previous answer next question at the walking mat seth when you make budget magic videos you usually post a non-budget version would be cool to see videos of them in action. Uh, well, we've actually recently, uh, other people have given this feedback, and I've started to play them on occasion on the stream. So I don't really have time to make a whole other video series with upgraded budget magic videos. But if you want to see some of them in action, Tuesday and Thursday evenings, uh, twitch.tv backslash Goldfish. We don't do it every time. We play a whole bunch of different stuff, but we do occasionally play upgraded versions on the stream. All right, next question from at Esper Shardmage. Engineered explosives, buy in December, or gamble on Modern Masters 3? I think it's at, at this point, it's probably just better to wait to see what we're going to see in Modern Masters 2017. And then, you know, if we don't see it by then, then yeah, it's probably, you're probably going to want to pick it up really quickly. Well, and remember, it's in March this year, so if you're waiting yeah. to December anyway, you don't have that long to wait to see the spoilers, so you might as well stick it out another <laughs> six weeks or whatever. Right. Next question, from Sableye the Jace, what are your favorite cards that are undervalued in their respective formats? Devouring Greed in Modern Anyone. What does Devouring Greed do? Uh, you can, for, let's see, two and two black, sack any number of spirits, you deal... 
three with times X, where X is the number of spirits that you sack, you drain for that amount, I believe. Uh, it's two times X, and that's going deep. <laughs> it has was, to be spirits in particular, not just creatures, but spirits. <laughs> uh, so what are your undervalued cards, guys? I think we're. I'm going to go old school way early in the cast when we uh, first started this. and I still think Scavenging Ooze is pretty under <laughs> undervalued. I always like talking up Scavenging Ooze. I think that card is is too important not to be uh, more valuable. What? That's, that's uh, like a cop-out answer. It's in like every green deck in Modern. <laughs> well, then that just goes to show you. It's like, still, it's so undervalued. So undervalued financially, oh, oh, you're saying. Oh, yeah, financially. I don't know if we... Oh, okay. You could take it from uh All right, all right. We'll, we'll have Chaz's answers. answer be the financial answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm always surprised that Cryptic Command isn't more played than it is in modern like cryptic just does so much and i guess it's just a testament to how fast the format is and cryptic has been a staple at times in the past but i think right now uh cryptic is a card that i just really love because it does everything i want you can uh, counter things you can draw cards you can kind of fog the opponent it does a lot of things i like in one and it just doesn't see that much play all right that's a bs answer as well because i get cryptic command in like every week (laughs) (laughs) there's more than enough cryptic commands floating around in modern (laughs) i'm sure i probably could come up with a better answer if i had seen this question more than 15 seconds ago (laughs) so so my answer is give us a good answer richard desperate raving well, I just played a storm deck and got beat by that, Richard. Boo! <laughs> <laughs> hey, 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 hey. I haven't seen Desperate Ravings in a long time, and I love busting out the dice just to figure out what card to discard. And it's a pretty good draw card, but a lot of people who play Jeskai will play Think Twice or Anticipate or something, and they just don't believe in the RNG gods. So uh, I prefer to draw two and... You know, basically gamble, right? Just hope the the answer you need does not get discarded. And if it does, then you just snapcaster it, no problem. So I think I should see more play. Uh, next question from Super Psycho. Why do we have to add two ticks to the three boosters for a draft on Magic Online? Is there any explanation? Uh, so Wizards makes money, I think? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, why do we have to pay <laughs> to play a constructed event? So that, that two tickets is kind of your entry fee into it. Uh, and it's so that wizards can make money. Uh, next question from at Streakus. Instead of masterpieces, how about one mythic and two rares in each pack? Might lower standard costs and make limited more fun. Well, luckily we didn't see huge expedition blowouts over the uh, or masterpiece blowouts over the Pro Tour weekend. But I mean, it just goes. I think standard is in a pretty good spot. It, it's it's fairly affordable as it is. I don't know if. Maybe restructuring. I mean, ob- yeah, restructuring to the the packs to that will probably bring the format price down even further. But I don't think they really need to do that. I think it would be miserable in limited. <laughs> I think I think two rares would just be too much. We a lot of modern day rares are very bomby and more so in some sets than others. But if you have that many floating around the draft pool, you're going to have a lot of games that just come down to who draws their rare first, and I don't know if that's how we want limited to be well wait wait quick question then would you rather the pack be that or you still get to play your expedition or your masterpiece in limited 
I'm fine with that because it just doesn't come up that much. Expeditions are okay. so rare. Like, yeah, you're going to get blown out once in a while by mm. them, but it's going to be rare enough that I'm not overly concerned about it. When okay. the two rares would impact every single draft, every single game. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't know what this would accomplish. Uh, if you want to lower pack prices, you could actually just lower the pack price. You can set the MSRP to 299 and that wouldn't you know, mess around with limited that much. So I think Wizards has pretty much balanced everything around these ratios already. And they've kind of just said masterpieces are too rare, so just don't bother with them. So if they want just to make standard cost less, they can just lower the MSRP. Uh, next question from my junk drawer. Can you see Wizards tweaking Legacy instead of confronting the reserve list, e.g. ban dual lands? Don't even get me started on this. <laughs> Don't even get me started on this. That, we've talked about this at length in the past, but that, that's based on the assumption that Wizards is actually concerned and wants Legacy to be a uh, format that people are playing often. And I think most of us agreed that we're not exactly sure that that's what Wizards wants at this point. Yeah, and anytime anyone says reserve list, just look at Magic Online. There is no reserve list, the cards are dirt cheap, yet there's not that many players. You know, relative to standard, modern, and limited. That basically tells me people are not interested in playing Legacy. The, I'm still a firm believer that we you would see a new format before they try to go in and fix legacy and you know ban dual lands and all this stuff and, and mess with the reserve list all right uh, also from my junk drawer could including masterpiece uncommons like bolt remand etc at a slightly different rarity help with the feel bads oh i think we're mm. already getting so complex with like the amount of rarities we have now i don't think we want like uh, uncommon masterpieces, rare masterpieces, <laughs> mythic ma- like uh, yeah. it's already a lot as it is uh, as far as complexity. So yes, it could help with the feel bads, but I don't know if it's worth the cost of having that confusion. Yeah, yeah, and I think they'll just use these cards as normal masterpieces eventually. Anyway, like your your bolt will be a masterpiece at some point, and it'll, it'll be the you know basically the super mythic masterpiece that we have today. So I think they'll just do that because. Uh, I expect one day we'll have a 100% Masterpiece deck. <laughs> That's, like, legitimate. <laughs> Next question from Maxi Wawa. Uh, buy cards featured in YouTube videos before publishing. Then publish and sell after prices explode. Why don't you do this? So many ticks. Uh... Seth, can we get rich quick overnight? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, honestly, a lot of people think that that's something you could do. But for one thing, it would take a ton of work. It's really hard to buy a lot of the same card on Magic Online because bots have limits on how many you can buy. And it's then you have to find someone that's willing to buy the cards. And it it would be a lot more work than you would think. Plus, I just don't think it's, it's worth it. I don't want to... Uh, one of the things I love about writing for and working at MTG Goldfish is we actually aren't necessarily trying to sell cards. Like we're not a card store. So I, I really appreciate that because sometimes people on other sites have this like cloud hanging over them when they write a spoiler article. Are they just trying to get me to pre-order this card from their site? And we don't really have to deal with that because we don't sell cards. Uh, so basically having a clean reputation and having people understand that that's not the business that I'm in is worth way more than any amount of ticks that I could get 
from uh from profiting off budget magic cards. Yeah, plus it you, I don't think you could actually do it. I think if you bought enough cards to make it worthwhile, the price would spike. Therefore making your thing not legitimate. So I, I don't think you can actually do it based on how the moto economy works, but don't quote me on that. Uh, we, we don't do it because there's just no point. The, the whole reason yeah. we make budget magic is to give affordable decks to people. Right? That That is the whole point of budget magic. And kind of speculating behind the scenes and making a profit and spiking the prices like defeats the whole purpose of the you know the operation so we we don't do it because of that in all honesty we spend more time thinking about ways and we haven't come up with one yet but to keep these crazy spike price spikes from happening way more time spending uh spent thinking about that than thinking about how we could potentially try to like buy copies of cards and make money off them it's the it's the opposite it's the exact opposite of what we want we would rather not see these cards spike because i hate getting emails from people saying oh i tried to go buy the budget magic deck but there's no cards in stock or it's twice as much now and uh it's really frustrating for us too to have that happen all the time but we haven't i don't know if there is a solution to it all right next question from charlie a davies what do you think of people using ad block on the site and to watch videos uh i don't mind i mean it's we all use the internet if you use ad block you you ad block stuff and if you ad block goldfish as well uh that's your right uh, ideally i would prefer you not to do it but i'm not you know it's it's your right right you can browse the internet however you like so uh if you do do that though like I don't know, share the site with your friend or something or or buy some merch or something. But, you know, you can do whatever you want. And it is what it is. And that's how the Internet works. So we can't really change it. Next question. Proggy Boog. How do you guys balance your lament over draft EV with lower standard prices? Can't have both. I don't lament over it because at the end of the day... I mostly play papers, so it might be different if you know for for Richard and Seth because they primarily play online. I just like to you know make an, a you know thing of it. I go, I draft, you know, spend a few hours outside of you know where you live, and you get to enjoy yourself. You do a little trading, you do you know whatever, you socialize. So for me, it doesn't really matter. I'm not so worried about making back the EV of my packs when I draft. Because that's just not what I'm about. Plus, I've already accepted the fact that I'm not going to do that anyway. So, because I always open jank, and uh, that's okay. Uh, for me, I think the trade-off is worth it in the grand scheme. Uh, that's my initial thought on it. I think cheaper standard cards, hopefully, is a worthwhile trade-off for worse pack opening experiences. And you're right, you can't have it both ways. So why it's frustrating to open boxes with no value, uh, as someone that really sees how the financial aspect of the game works, I can rationalize it away for the exact reason you said, because standard's cheaper. My concern is the new players who don't necessarily follow the finance aspect as much as I do, and some of them just opening bad packs and quitting the game altogether because they don't see the trade-off like I might see it. Yeah, I just don't open packs anymore. <laughs> which is fine. Uh, the, 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 re the reason I worry is for new players, right? Because new players like opening packs. Uh, but I just don't open packs because I don't like the high variance. But uh, cheap standard prices are good for players. And I guess we'll see how it turns out. But basically, I'm more on the side of cheap standard prices. And I just don't open packs. So I don't 
feel bad. <laughs> and then that's it. Uh, next question from at bitboddessbot. How likely do you think it is that the standard meta will be less control heavy by the first week of December? Most magic players aren't going to pilot control like Shouda or or Carlos or anyone in the top eight. I mean, will it decrease drastically? I don't know about drastically, but it it felt it feels like there there is going to be more a, a little bit of a different meta once we go back to you know the s you know watching SCG every weekend, not having these high end EV uh, tournaments and events. Um, but the good thing is, is like right around the corner, there's like Aether Revolt, so things are going to just change again. I have the cop out answer. I think it's going to be more heavily played than it was heading into the Pro Tour, but less heavily played than it will be for the next couple weeks. I think a lot of people are going to flock to it because it was first and second at the Pro Tour, and some of those people are going to fade away. So I think we're going to see a spike over the next two weeks to a month, but by the time we get back around to the 1st of December, six weeks from now, it's going to be fading away again as people realize they're not Shota. I think it's here to stay. Uh, I did fairly well with Control. I'm not Shota, and you know, Torrential Gear Hulk plus Glimmer of Genius is powerful enough that I don't think there are enough fast decks to punish you. So I think it will stay, and I think it's it's going to be like the old standard with the Titans, where the Titans are so strong that you're pulled towards Control anyway. And you know, Torrential Gear Hulk is such a great finisher that Control will always be around, I think. I don't think there's a deck fast enough because you have turn 3 Radiant Flames and you have enough spot removal. Uh, you have Fumigate for white, and you have, uh, what's the minus two, minus two Exile? The the black Devoid one. So you have sweepers in all the colors, so I don't think you can just run over control. So I think a lot of people will try and be unsuccessful, but there will be a lot of people that try and will be successful, and they'll keep playing the game. So yeah, Something tendrils? Flaying tendrils, flaying tendrils. Yep. Next question from Eric Cow. I played one of your budget decks. I received numerous angry messages calling it out as a net deck. <laughs> Is this the norm for Magic Online? Uh, wow. <laughs> there, there are some salty people on Magic Online, but I'm guessing that you just had a below-average experience. I haven't heard a lot of people saying that or having the same experience that you have, so hopefully if you play some more matches, you won't run into that again. But uh, like anywhere on the internet, it's easier to say mean things that you would never say to someone's face when you're kind of anonymous and behind a computer screen. So I think it does happen more than real life, but I I don't have that happen to me that often. And I haven't heard a lot of other people say that that happens to them on a consistent basis, more of a every once in a while kind of thing. Yeah. There, there's always salty people on the internet and it doesn't matter what you play. It could be a homebrew. And then they're going to say, Oh, that terrible pile of cards beat me. Uh, you could just, played a card you had in your hand for like seven turns and a like nice top deck so there's always people that will complain but you don't see them that often i can think of maybe one or two salty people i've run into in the last like couple months of magic online so it's not that normal and just brush it off ignore them and uh just do your thing and it usually works out next question from at sugi time i got a box of kaladesh for judging regionals pro tour raised a lot of the prices uh, did EV increase? Should I crack slash hold slash sell? Uh, according to Don Glare, the current EV at TCG low prices is about $75 for a box of Kaladash. So I guess 
make your decision based on that. I don't know how much you could sell the box for. Also, keep in mind the variants involving expeditions. Most boxes are going to pay out less than the EV because you won't have an expedition, and that value's included into the average that we see with an EV. All right. At Green Geek, Torrential Gear Hulk is clearly the breakout card of the Pro Tour. Has it peaked or will it go higher? Nowhere to go but down. Yeah, it only sees uh, you know two to three X as a finisher in control decks, so uh, it's not that wildly played. Uh, at JDHD, Aether hubs have spiked to almost eight dollars each in Australia. Wow! When should they start going back down? Thirty dollars <laughs> for four hubs seems crazy. Oh, is uh, is that in? I wonder if that's in U.S. dollars or if that or what the exchange rate right. is. Um. Because right well, now they've spiked to about $4 here. So that actually might... I think that sounds about right. That, that's still crazy expensive for an uncommon. <laughs> yeah. that I would... I, there's no way. Within a few weeks, I mean, it'll probably be around $1 to $2. I remember... What was it? Duskwatch Recruiter was around like 4 bucks for a little while. And, and like Reflector Mage for a little while, right? I'm not sure on this one, honestly. Like... Being a land that goes in every deck, Ether Hub was incredibly heavily played at the yeah. Pro Tour. So it's just like every single deck can play it. So I think it could go back down, but I would not be shocked if it was 3 or $4 a few months from now, just because every single deck can play this card. Yeah, I think within a, like a month or so, we'll, we'll, it's probably going to be around 2 I say it, don't, it doesn't go any less than 2 all right, crazy world we live in with Ether Hubs being one of the most valuable cards you can open in your pack. Uh, next question from at TM Steeler: Why doesn't Magic Online link your DCI number? Uh, I don't know. Is there any? What's the benefit to that? Like, why wouldn't it? Like, what what, what is the point I, I of providing your DCI number at F and M? Like, I don't know, it tracks stuff. Like, why Why shouldn't you track your Magic Online stuff? But I mean, Magic Online tracks it oh. itself, but I don't know if they want it connected. I don't know. I mean, the whole system is so weird with Planeswalker points and everything now anyway that I don't know how much it matters. It's not like you get ratings queued for Pro Tours anymore. So I I don't know. I mean, you should have, I have only no one Magic identity. So I, like Wizards really likes to segregate these two things. I don't know why, but it would be sweet if I could, you know, see see my well, first of all, if I could see my Magic Online rating. <laughs> That's not even possible. But then have it linked with my tournament results for paper and just know how I'm doing or who I played or whatever. That would be sweet, but I don't expect that coming anytime soon. Uh, next question, also from TM Steeler. Do you think the Pro Tour would benefit from X number of wild cards, e.g. active DCI numbers picked at random? Mm, I don't know about that. Mm, I think that if you just pick random DCI numbers, those people <laughs> would likely get crushed, and it wouldn't be a very great experience. So uh, I think maybe there could be more ways of queuing for Pro Tours, uh, or some other way to have people get there. I don't know what it would be. It would be cool, like, the the Sunday Super Series thing they did, like, if that queued you for the Pro Tour. There was other ways that different people could make it to a Pro Tour, but I don't think random DCI number picking is the way to go. Yeah, you don't want to see, see me that playing at the Pro Tour. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but 
they do have special invites. The Wizards has from time to time just invited random people to play at the Pro Tour based on unknown criteria. Uh, so they they, <laughs> they they do have special invites, but they don't just throw them around willy nilly yeah. to random people. There's usually a reason, and that reason is they're famous celebrities or something, or they're uh, kind of uh, outstanding in the community. So like uh, high level judges and things like that. Uh, next yeah. question from not Cody Smith. Where's the bottom on inventions? So refer to our masterpieces talk. Uh, Sugi time. Should we expect standard to remain as cheap as it is? Buying play sets, should I do now or after the Pro Tour? Uh, definitely after the Pro Tour. And it's already <laughs> fairly uh, cheap, I guess. It's fairly affordable as it is now. Um, but yeah, I mean, most cards have nowhere to go but down from here. Uh, since it is technically after the Pro Tour, I'm going to go with that oh, one. Oh, okay. <laughs> I see what you're doing. Also, <laughs> no, it, it should stay cheaper, though. That's yeah. the impact of the masterpieces, I think, we're seeing. Yep. Also from Sugi Time, wire foils less expensive on Magic Online. Do people just hate the way they look? Uh, that, and they freeze up your computer on occasion and make the program crash and all kinds of fun things like that. Yeah, they that. literally so slow the, down the your computer. Whammy. So people turn, <laughs> turn off the animations, and at that point, why do you even want to do this? Yeah, not, not only do they look worse, they make your computer crash. They're like, <laughs> there's no upside to foils on Magic Online. Uh, only wizards can make a premium card like actually worse on Magic I, Online. <laughs> I will say, though, masterpieces are going to be non-foil, which is something I had asked Wizards for, and they're going to actually do it on Magic Online. So now I might actually play masterpieces in my deck for that reason. Do you realize how much money Wizards can make if they just had animated cards on Magic Online? You could have the normal version, or you know how on Reddit they post, like, you know, I animated cards such and such, or during the Pro Tour there's, like, the little animations on the cards? If you could have that on your card and not lag your computer... Like people would pay a premium just to play that, just like the the golden borders and Hearthstone and the alternate portraits. So much money to be made. Someone had a really good suggestion that you just flip the packs. So when you open a pack, you get on Moto, you get fifteen foils and then maybe one non foil. <laughs> <laughs> and Moto is down for the afternoon. Why is this? <laughs> uh, at Tamis Krupa. I have a Phyrexian half of dual decks Phyrexian versus Coalition. Should I sell the cards individually as a whole as a whole or hold them? I don't know if there's much of a market for one half of a dual deck. Because uh, I'm <laughs> assuming that means it's not sealed or anything. So I think you almost have to sell them individually to a buy list. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, yeah, so I mean, usually I have all these weird open yeah. dual decks. I just sell the important cards in them. I, I can't imagine yep. someone wanting to buy a dual deck and then just buying half of it. So, <laughs> uh, at Darkness Zora, would printing more playable uncommons and commons help minimize the feel-bad feelings when opening packs? I think, I, the feel, I think the feel bad is financial, and I don't think you can really make uncommons and commons be valuable in standard legal sets unless you're going to I don't know, print torrential gear Hulk or something is uncommon, like as legit, <laughs> like busted card like that. So Aether I don't think it really, <clears throat> I don't yeah. think it really helps with the problem though, because you're just not going to get them to maintain enough value for them to feel like wins when you open them. Yeah. I mean, we've seen a few in the last few sets, like, um, 
Reflector Mage and Duskwatch Recruiter, and there was, a, I think, a couple... Um, I think there's maybe one or two Uncommons in Eldritch Moon. But yeah, like Seth said, I mean... It's just hard for those to even maintain value that you're still probably not going to even fe- you're still probably going to feel bad even if you do open them without like a masterpiece or something. Yeah, I think it's good because you know if the cards are expensive, then you open some value. If they're not, at least you're building a deck. You know, so like right. if your card is all like commons and uncommons, you can actually your your deck price is going to be cheap. So I think oh. that would help if you actually put more playable cards at uncommon and common. I'm all for more unplayable cards at Common Uncommon. I just don't know if it helps with the feel-bads with pack crap. Right, yeah. But I think we should have more playable cards at lower rarities. I, I do agree with that. A-D-K-T, A-D-K-T. Will you ever have a popper price filter with Movers and Shakers on the MTG Goldfish website? Yes. I just need to do don't it. Don't we? It, well, no, because it's hard. Because you basically your pool is all commons, whereas all the other ones are just sets. So I need to do something special for that. But uh, and then we need to make it presentable. I don't care if your one cent common change to three cents. That's a three hundred percent increase, but not relevant. So th- there are some challenges with Popper based on how the format is, but it is something uh, that people have been asking for, and I, I should do. Well, and there is the Mover and Shakers page, right? Along with, like, Standard, Modern, Pauper is one of the Is it the options did on I that page. Did I solve this and forget? Oh, I did solve this and forget about it. Never mind. I'm so smart. <laughs> I fixed it before. <laughs> but Pauper is Richard. special because Pauper has special rules, so not everything works with Pauper on the website. Next question from at Fit. When are we going to get Dragonfish tokens? It's talking about scoops. Scoops. I don't know. Sometime soon. Uh, the, the biggest. The biggest thing is our artist is quite busy, and we gotta figure out which tokens we want to make. So if you have more suggestions, so I've heard a lot of dragons. Uh, send them to me, and uh, when we do the next round of tokens, we might get some dragonfish tokens. Uh, also, similar question from Kenneth S. Are you going to do additional token types in the future? Yes. You will have scoop spirits sometime soon because I want them. (laughs) (laughs) I really need Lingering Souls tokens. Uh, We we had to cut them from the first run due to time, but Ah. more. more. Uh, Julian S., I read in your coverage that the Pro Tour now is probably the best time to sell uh, BFZ and Oath of the Gatewatch cards. Does this apply to modern cards like Reality Smasher, Thought Not Seer, Aljazi Displacer? Uh, should I take a net loss for store credit, or is there a better way? I think, like for the, I think for the modern cards in specific, you, you might as well just hold on to them because you never know. You might want to play them in modern, and it's good to just kind of keep a modern collection like that. Because I mean, what are you? You're going to sell them? Maybe. I mean, they're so low at this point. I haven't really checked, but I'm I'm, I'm sure they're fairly low enough that. You're not going to gain enough by, especially just the time invested to sell them, buy them all back, you know, at a later date. You might as well just keep them. Yeah, they're they're in the three to five dollar range right now, and for me, that's the biggest reason not to sell them. Like, sure that I think that they probably will drop in price as they rotate, but the difference between a playset at five dollars and a playset at three dollars probably isn't worth the hassle. I'm more worried about like Gideon. Uh, Kalidus, cards like that that are like 20 plus 20 dollars now that could end up being like five dollars after rotation or ten dollars with those cards it actually matters more to sell them and rebuy them but if it's five dollars or below i wouldn't 
be overly concerned, especially since they see modern play. Yeah. All right, Michael K. Been playing with Seth's 8-whack, but finding the linear nature too limiting. I'm looking to move into a different slash new deck with game against as many decks as I can. Is this possible? Uh, It's possible. Is it possible to do that on a super cheap budget? It's definitely harder. It's easier to build straightforward linear decks that are cheap. I would look towards maybe the Spirits deck we played in Modern on Budget Magic. Uh, Basically, if you can get a control or mid-range deck, you're going to have a deck that has a lot more game than uh, in a wide array of matchups than you will with a straightforward aggro deck. So I would look towards the Spirits deck if you're looking for budget. Otherwise, some sort of like controlling, even like if you're not budget, Jund is a good example of a deck that can compete against everything. So you want to play that style of deck, and I think Spirits would be my number one recommendation from recent budget magics. Yeah, if budget is no concern, I would recommend you my good friend Jund. <laughs> Uh, Emil L, I was wondering if masterpieces continue every set. Will the chase cards to make masterpiece to make into masterpieces run out, and thus make future masterpieces less sought after, and therefore bring some EV back to the rest of the set? Uh, sooner or later, yeah. There's a finite <laughs> number of cards that I care about that could be expeditions. So that's one of the things we've talked about from the beginning. Actually, if you're gonna print fifty a block or fifty five a block. You're going to run out of good stuff pretty quick. All right, here's my question. In the next three years, do you think we can make a deck out of just masterpieces? At 50 a block? Probably. Uh, can you make a deck or, like, build no, no, a like, legit... <laughs> like, can you build Jund yeah, with all... Like, you know, like, you can, like, totally foil out Jund or something? Like, that kind of oh. thing. Not just, like, like, together, yeah, here's 50 artifacts and some lands. <laughs> here's, like, no, no, like, an actual legitimate deck. You're going to be missing, like, lower rarity stuff. You're probably not going to get your Terminate for Jund or maybe uh, those type of cards you're going to be missing. So I think it's going to be hard because of that. So you don't think ever? Well, ever, possibly, because they're going to run out of stuff to do. But, I mean, three years, that's only, like, 500 Masterpieces printed. I don't think they'll be down to, like, Terminates and Duress by that point. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, when are we getting our Expedition Treetop Village? Does Jund still run Treetop Village? Uh, some do, but it's not that common. I do want Expedition Basic Lands, though. If they did really sweet-looking Expedition Basic Lands, I would be down with that. I'm playing M14 Show to Mountains from now on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last question from Pedro. I built UR Machine Gun. Do you think this is still good to play at FNM? Is that the Dynavote Tower deck? I don't, or, yeah, I don't know what like, UR what is... Machine Gun is, but... That sounds like a blue-red spells deck, and there was a blue-red spells deck that top-aided the Pro Tour, so you can probably just take that deck to F&M, and it'll probably be pretty good. So that's the Dynavolt Tower deck by Pierre uh, Dijon, and that's all our fish mail. That's it. Great questions. Uh, Thanks, everyone, for sending those in. Um, I think we hit everything, gentlemen. Any, Any final thoughts here? So out the door... What will you guys be playing in Standard now that the Pro Tour has revealed the format to us? I don't know. I'm still undecided. 
Uh, the, I'll probably end up playing some of the control decks, but the deck I've been most excited about is the Dynavolt Tower Blue Red Spells deck. So that's that's the first deck I'm going to try out. But I expect to play Grixis and Jeskai Control at some point as well. I'm going to play Grixis yep. Control. <laughs> I played Blue Black Control <laughs> before, but saying. now I'm going to buy a Hariruya shirt. I'm going to pretend I'm Shota. <laughs> I'll have my M14 Mountain, and I will draw lands and put them into play without shuffling my hand. And when I 05 my league, I will probably switch decks. But yeah, I think everyone will play Grixis, and I will be there trying it. And uh, Grixis has fevered visions, which is the real reason I want to play Grixis over blue black control. Because I expect everyone to be on control, and fevered visions will give you the, the leg up in the control mirror. Yep. All right, gentlemen, we will do this next week. Thanks everyone for tuning in. This is going to be the MTG Goldfish Crew signing out.